The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves. And the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May. And then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your Pacer's success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Pacer's Podcast. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams, and today we are tackling another communication station theme, which comes up time and time again in the MRCP Paces. Now, you might want to know, but I'm not going to tell you. No, I'm really not going to tell you. Oh, okay, I'll tell you. This week, we are tackling confidentiality, as it might be presented in Paces. And I've slightly broken the mold this week as I've invited someone on the show who, despite having never sat the MRCP, certainly knows a thing or two about our theme for today. He is the king of confidentiality. He's the Archduke of autonomy and voted the most trustworthy man in the Southwest for three years running, 2019 to present. It's Dr. Tommy Isaac. Tommy is a Peas Reg based in the Southwest and also happens to be the cleverest person I know. And I've been trying to find a way to crowbar him onto the show. And this seemed like the perfect opportunity. So, Tommy, welcome to the show. Hello there. What what an introduction. You know, probably set the bar quite high for the chat we're going to have. So thanks for, for not over-egging what I'm going to be able to help you chat about today. Hopefully we can have a good talk about confidentiality and why it's important. Yeah, absolutely. And Tommy... As a peds red, you haven't done MRCP, but this is a topic which isn't specific to adult medicine. And in fact, I would say is probably even harder to approach for you and the peds team when there are kids involved. So can you just tell us a bit about the types of ethical problems involving confidentiality that happen in a, in a peds setting? Sure. Um, I imagine it's probably quite uh, similar to some of the things you might run into on the Jerry's wards, you know. We deal with patients who have family members with them, have carers. Um, so there's lots of moving parts to all of your discussions. Um, we obviously have the slight difficulty of our patients by uh, definition lacking capacity as they come in and having to uh, prove a degree of competence. So to be able to assent to, to things, including the sharing of information where as uh, in adults, obviously, everyone has implied capacity when they first come in and can dissent to sharing information. And you don't have necessarily have two people to every patient who have some kind of legal responsibility to them. At most, you might have one who's got uh, a legal power of attorney over healthcare. So I suppose the difficulties that come with confidentiality is you've still got the patient at the centre of everything, but you've got 
other people who are involved in the uh, life of that patient. Um, and so knowing what information to share and how and when is a, a tricky business. Yeah, absolutely. And so all the way through this episode, we're going to be covering the basic principles of confidentiality, how they might be applied in a PACES setting. And then towards the end of the show, we're going to be covering a few common cases, which are classics that come up either often in PACES, but also in the sort of interviews. Um, For example, some um, IMT, internal medical training interviews, have an ethical component as well. And these sorts of cases often come up. So How about we jump into this episode looking at confidentiality? So confidentiality is an absolutely critical part of the doctor-patient relationship that doctors can be trusted to keep information relating to a patient's confidential information. Now, one quote that I read during the research for this episode was from the book Medical Ethics and Law by Stone, Salvalescu and Hendrick. And that quote is, confidentiality is a cornerstone of trust that enables patients to be open with doctors about their symptoms and problems. So starting off with the absolute basics of confidentiality, I guess the first question we ought to think about, Tommy, is why is confidentiality important? And I wanted just to highlight for the listeners one overarching theme in this is about autonomy. And if the listeners are regular listeners, they will remember from our episode on capacity and consent that autonomy is self-rule and determines a patient's right to decide how they're going to be looked after or cared for. And this extends to the patient having the right to expect their information to be held in confidence by their doctors who knows any details or specific information about them. So Tommy, what other factors are important when discussing confidentiality with our patients? Um, well, I suppose it's kind of uh, an implied part that there is a promise between you and your patient uh, that you will maintain confidentiality. And that, in first principles, is there to allow the patient or to feel safe to disclose the kind of information that might be um, relevant, but perhaps, you know, in some way, uh, discrediting or difficult for them to, to share with their healthcare provider and you as a doctor. And that's reflected in uh, the GMC's good medical practice. So that's, you know, the the, the bottom line. Um, the other reason confidentiality is important is if you breach it, there are significant consequences. Firstly, we're going to lose that doctor-patient relationship and the ability for them to disclose information to us. But also it means that it can have significant implications for you as a professional. Um, it can mean that your probity is call, called into uh, place and it can mean that you uh, may suffer some kind of consequences from a, a professional body like the GMC uh, if you're not able to maintain that important principle of confidentiality. Yeah, and the other thing just to mention is that although it's also obviously the doctor-patient relationship is important, but the other thing is breaking that doctor-patient relationship or calling it into question might mean that later down the line, the patient actually wants to avoid contact with medical professionals where they might need that. So, you know, they might have concerning symptoms and actually then they don't end up seeking medical help and then they suffer poorer health outcomes as a result. So yeah, completely agree with uh, with everything you said there. And then extrapolating from there, they might then go and tell you know, two or three other friends about that experience. And then you're potentially affecting uh, numerous other people who are, who then also suffer the effects of a breach in confidentiality. So yeah, really important stuff. So I guess then 
one thing we need to look at is what makes information confidential. So, Tommy, maybe you can run us through that. Well, it has to to use slightly you know fruity language for it um, have the necessary quality of confidence. You know, it has to be exchanged in a way where it's going to be clear that it's it's confidential. So perhaps you know it's done in a circumstance where it's clear that you as the doctor need to keep this in confidence. So, you know, a, a, a clinical scenario where you're talking with a patient, there is an implied obligation of confidence there. Um, and there are probably other parts of your day-to-day professional life where you might have that, you know, a colleague might disclose something about them having a difficulty outside of work, and that would also have that kind of obligation of confidence. It needs to mean that if you were to you know, reveal this information if you were to disclose it without the permission of the party from which you've gained that information, um, it would cause some kind of detriment to them. It would be bad to to, to them. So, you know, revealing someone's um, healthcare data uh, is probably going to be in some way detrimental to them if they've not consented to it, even if it is just that breach of trust that we've been talking about. And to that end, it has to be something that's not in the public domain already, which is where confidentiality around death becomes a bit more complicated because death is a public matter and the last bit which probably makes it a little bit more uh is the gray areas that will come into in the scenarios it has to be in the public interest to protect it so to not reveal it um and there's a few things we'll probably talk about later where that public interest starts to create some uh, shades of gray yeah perfect and as a general rule i would say that you should assume You should always ask a patient's consent to share any information about them with anyone else. And then after that, it's a case of figuring out exactly what the exceptions are. And any decision on breaching confidentiality can be broadly divided into three distinct situations, all of which we're going to cover in this episode. The first of which is when you cannot breach confidentiality. The second is when you can. And the third is when you should or when you legally have to breach confidentiality. So three quite different approaches to the same sort of problem. And we're going to start off by talking about the principles of maintaining confidentiality. So first of all, discussing situations uh, where consent is or isn't required when using a patient's information. Providing a patient has capacity, asking for express consent from them is necessary in order to update relatives, publish case reports, or use their case for educational presentations or teaching. And this extends even beyond the patient's death. Often you'll be expected to gain consent to share information with the next of kin, even if the patient has passed away. In all of these situations, you should be expected to ask the patient's consent. And so, Tommy, we're going to just discuss a few specific situations with this in mind. So what do we need to consider when we're considering issues around confidentiality when we're discussing anything about a patient with their family? Well, I think this is something probably that we all encounter and I tend to encounter probably a little more often than the average adult medic, especially during the pandemic where people haven't got as many visitors. Um, but when you are thinking of disclosing information to a um, about a patient to their family member in a discussion, so either to update them or to discuss their care, it's Always, always, no matter what the situation, the best idea to ask the patient, are they happy for you to do that? Um, And I do that even when the patient is in the room, the family members are in the room, um, because it clarifies that, you know, that patient has the right to say, actually, I don't want to talk about this now. Can we 
take a sidebar that's just me me and the doctor to talk about these things um, and that's something that I often find happens with some of my teenage patients the reason that stuff's important is you don't know the dynamics of these families that you're you're talking to sometimes people don't get on some people have different ideas of the boundaries of the information they're happy to share with their family um, and so it's bottom line just get the patient's permission and even if they uh, haven't got capacity you know I think you can often understand their wishes so you know a patient who perhaps you know uh, an elderly patient who's delirious is probably still able to explain that they would be happy for a family member to know about those those things, whereas they might not be able to discuss the more complicated nuances of it. So depending, it also depends on what information you're thinking about sharing. You know, if you're saying, can I tell your daughter that you're here and everything's going okay? They're probably able to, might be able to discuss something short like that, but discussing the falls ins and outs, they may not be able to give that consent at that time. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing to always consider in these types of situations is that even after you've discussed with a family member, always important just to document the fact that you gain capacity of the patient. So, I mean, that sounds pretty obvious, but, you know, you don't want to end up in a GMC tribunal because apparently you didn't get consent from the patient to share that information. So moving on to a slightly different topic, publication and education. Now, this is an interesting topic Tommy, what sort of confidential issues can be involved when we're maybe publishing case reports or either using a patient's case for educational purposes? Mm-hmm. Well, so when it comes to publication, the good thing is that you're most of the time sort of walked through it by the forms that you need to f- fill in. Um, pretty much all of the journals are going to require express written consent from the patient um, or if they haven't if that patient doesn't have capacity or passed away, you need to get that consent from next of kin to be able to use specific information for um, publication in a journal. And that typically also includes explanation of how things will be uh, anonymized. Um, the area where you're probably more at risk and could more easily trip, trip up is teaching and education in the less formal setting. So the, the ward, journal clubs, you know, departmental presentations um, and it's unlikely that the these are going to have a significant effect on the the patient but you still should be able to get consent for them especially if there's any kind of identifiable data in there and that may not necessarily mean just you know their name and date of birth and that kind of thing if they've got a particularly rare problem and might have you know a rare kind of um sign on chest x-ray or or so on that stuff can be quite identifiable you know the one patient who came through with yada 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 disease actually even if you haven't named them people will know who you're talking about so that's why it's important to get consent to these things Uh, and that makes it makes it much more important especially if it's going to be a formal teaching session so you know if you're making a powerpoint about this take the time to ask the patient if they're happy for you to use some of their, their information and obviously if you can, you need to anonymize that data. Perfect. So we talked about some situations where we would need to gain consent prior to sharing information. And so the next part, we're going to talk about breaching confidentiality. Now, asking for consent isn't a true breach of confidentiality, but we're going to run through a number of other categories where these are true breaches of confidentiality. So the first one is, A breach of confidentiality can be made if it's in the patient's best interests 
and the patient lacks capacity. For an update on what it means to lack capacity, go back to episode 22 of the podcast for a full episode on consent and capacity. The second situation is when the information is required by law. And we'll come on to that and discuss it further a little bit later on. And lastly, it's when a breach in confidentiality is justified in the public interest. And we'll also cover that a little bit later on as well. One point to make crystal clear for all of our listeners is that this is not a subjective decision. Unlike judging when a patient has capacity or not, which might be subjective or change with the situation, it's not a judgment and it should always be based on underpinning legal principles. I think just jumping on from that, that Sam, is that, you know, um, thinking towards those people who are doing exams and also interviews that this stuff is it's not complicated to learn there's not that much that we're going to need to go through here but because it's not subjective there is a right answer and so you can look like a right plum if you don't know what's what um so it is worth taking the time to wrap your head around these things one for those exams and interviews and the other thing is that as you become more senior and step into this senior decision maker roles it's less often the clinical stuff that people are asking you what what do we do it's the slightly more complicated who do we talk to are we allowed to tell this patient's child about their their um, dna cpr that kind of stuff and so knowing what the rules are and where the goalposts are is a really important thing yeah couldn't agree with you more tommy and that's a really good point and i should say the the only time i've actually been on call on a night shift and the medical reg has called the the general medicine consultant uh, during a night shift was for uh, an ethical issue rather than a clinical one so yeah absolutely perfect so we talked we've mentioned a few times so far through the show we've talked about the public interest this is sort of a, a vague and vacuous term. So tell me, what, what exactly is the public interest? Well, it's it's not that it would be interesting to the public. You know, you might hear the phrase public interest in a uh, the context of newspapers, and they're allowed to say things if it would be of interest to the public. And I'm sure there's some juicy goss about your patients, but that's not the case here. Uh, to be of the public interest in the context of doctor-patient confidentiality it has to be where there's a serious risk of harm or death to either the patient or another person in the general public so in the situations where this is the case often the confidential information can be shared without the patient's express consent and that's because there are usually risks associated with maintaining the confidentiality that outweigh the patient's right to it so thinking about those kind of um, four pillars in ethics it's a beneficence um, point that means it outweighs the autonomy of uh, the patient's right to confidentiality. Even if this is the case, you still want to try and either one, get consent for what you're you're going to need to disclose. And two, um, if you are going to breach confidentiality, breach it as little as possible. So as much as you necessarily need, but only that key information. Yeah, brilliant. So Out of the three uh, situations which we briefly mentioned earlier, we're going to, first of all, cover the situations where doctors must breach confidentiality. And the reasons why we're covering this first is it's probably unlikely that this is going to come up in an exam or 
uh, an interview, but it's still important to know, uh, especially in a, in a clinical sense, if um, you discover yourself in one of these situations in your clinical practice in the UK, it's very good to uh, to know, as Tommy said, what the correct answer is in each of these situations. So Tommy, what are the situations where doctors must breach confidentiality? Well, some of them aren't that complicated all that worrying you might run into actually more often than you think so one of them's uh notifiable disease diseases um there's a there's a list on the gov.uk website but this is to try and prevent outbreaks of particular infectious diseases and this will actually often be done by your microbiology colleagues but it's worth knowing for your best practice that you can tell the patient that the, this disclosure is going to be made and thinking about those exam and interview situations if you're being asked about a notifiable disease saying oh i'd make sure i got the patient's consent and inform them i'd be disclosing their information to uh, uh because of a notifiable d- disease it'll make you look real slick of course you don't the fact with these ones is you don't have to but thinking about i was trying to say thinking about those kind of exam interview situations that's where you can bring this kind of knowledge in i suppose so the next one might be uh reporting a death to the coroner so you know um Whilst you're sharing information about uh, a patient after they die without express consent, um, this is often required to ascertain the cause of death of the patient. Um, and obviously, gaining their consent after they've died can be a little bit difficult. So this is an area where you don't, uh, where you're allowed to breach that confidentiality. Um, uh, and investigations by the coroner. So if you, you know, you've got a situation where the coroner is doing wants more information from you there are situations where you are allowed to breach confidentiality yeah perfect and i guess this again this is something which often you won't encounter too much resistance to because these situations are often when the cause of death is uncertain or unclear and often the family want that closure so again you're not going to encounter loads of resistance from that but important to know that this is another situation where um, breach of confidentiality are you know legal uh, legal to do and tommy what about the last one uh, well, the last one's probably the more spicy one and uh, one that I've, I've not encountered in, in my practice yet. But a circuit judge can sign a warrant and provide it to you so that there is a relevant court order requiring information. Uh, and that can be present, often presented through the police and means that there might be some information that you hold as the doctor that is pertinent to potential crime. So, and that would be a situation where you would be legally obligated to share that information or risk obstructing um, the course of justice. Um, So that would be a time where you have to breach confidentiality. But, you know, that might be a time where you go, oh, I'm going to have to do do this. Um, But you've got time. None of it's so urgent that you won't have time to discuss it with your consultant if you if you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing or, or talk to whatever uh, medical indemnity legal support service you subscribe to because they can also just help you feel confident that you're not doing anything that is uh, non-gratis. Yeah, absolutely. And just to underline what Tommy's said at the end there, so although in interviews you're often going to be assumed to be the the grade at which you are you know applying for you always have to understand you're, you're not the sole arbiter in this situation there's always senior doctors above you and as tommy said your medical indemnity insurers can be a, a great source of information and support uh, in situations like this so 
we're going to go on to talk about a few simple case reports, or maybe not so simple, and discuss the correct approach to these specific cases regarding confidentiality. Okay, let's get started working through these case scenarios which may feature either in paces or in an internal medical training interview, or even in some registrar interviews have quite similar um, scenarios to this. And as per usual, our disclaimer when discussing any case scenarios which feature here. Any case scenarios which feature here are entirely made up by me, and any likeness to anything similar seen elsewhere is purely coincidental and unintentional. Now that that's out of the way, let's get started with our first case. Case number one, you see a patient who has been admitted with a new presentation of diabetic ketoacidosis. They've been stabilized and now on the ward and ready for discharge. The patient is keen to go home and has already arranged to be collected. Earlier on the ward round, your consultant asked you to refer the patient to the community diabetes team and to directly telephone their GP surgery to advise them of the new prescriptions required. You go to explain this to the patient, but they've already been moved to the discharge lounge. How should you proceed? So, Tommy, maybe you can talk us through this one. Um, yeah, so this is a case that's about sharing information with other medical teams, isn't it? Um, and it's probably not that directly applicable uh, as a possible paces station, but it's about how we apply those core principles of confidentiality and a good good place to start before we get to some of the more complicated ones. Um, so there's a couple of ways you could try and approach this. First of which is that you can go and find the patient, but that involves schlepping all the way to the discharge lounge just to let them know and get consent to share that information with the community diabetes team. But for discussion's sake, we could say they've already gone. Um, well, actually sharing information with other medical teams in the hospital is something we do day to day. Um, and if we asked the patient's permission every time we did this, we probably wouldn't get that much done. Um, and, you know, one example of this is our, our discharge letters. You don't say to the patient before you let the GP know what happened to them. By the way, do you mind if I write the GP a letter? It's just done. Um, and this is part of a, a routine uh, sharing of information is probably OK. You know, if there was time on a routine review of the patient on the ward, you'd probably explain to them who's going to um find out about their care, the GP and the community diabetes team. But part of that would actually be to not just inform them, but because it would be useful for their care to know who's involved. And the main thing to think is that when we're discussing it with these other teams, we're doing it in the patient's best interest. So it's not really a serious breach of confidentiality and not something that's going to cause anything too, too worrying. So in the situation here, you don't necessarily have to have the patient's express consent to be able to speak to the GP and the community diabetes team um, because it's sensible and it would be in their best interests and it's sharing within medical teams. Wouldn't be too concerned about this uh, if you you know, you know, had to do it. Uh, I wouldn't worry about the GMC uh, knocking on your door, but I'm sure there's a few more cases we've got which might draw up a few more slight ethical quandaries. Yeah, absolutely. So this one's pretty straightforward, but you've got to start with the easy stuff before you get onto the slightly more tricky situations. So... Just to sum up the main learning point from our first case, it is that whilst sharing information about a patient with another member of the medical profession 
could be considered a breach. It's in the patient's best interests. You don't really need their express consent, and it's going to be uh, for their greater good later on. So it may be considered a breach, but it's not a serious breach, and you wouldn't be uh, you wouldn't be up in the GMC tribunal because of it. Moving on to our next case, case number two. You are assisting in an epilepsy clinic under the supervision of a neurology consultant. You are seeing a 25-year-old male patient as a follow-up appointment. The patient has a background of epilepsy with a seizure one month ago and has since been started on anti-epileptic medication. This appointment is to discuss his seizure this appointment is to discuss his seizure control and medication compliance. When the patient enters the room, you realize that you saw this patient drive into the hospital and park their car next to yours earlier that morning. There is no doubt in your mind that this patient is the same person you saw driving the car. How should you proceed? So Tommy, this one's a bit trickier. How would you go about this approaching this one? Well, you know, first caveat is this is outside of my my wheelhouse because the, the nice thing about paediatrics is none of them are allowed to drive uh, because they're mostly less than 17. Um, but this situation is uh, a patient who's had a documented seizure, which means they're going to have uh, some kind of driving restriction. I think it's uh, of, of one year from the last seizure. Um, you've then seen driving into the hospital that day um, and this poses a risk to the patient as well as other road users. So it needs to be taken seriously and you, you need to take some actions. So the first thing, like in all situations, is you want to information gather. Did the patient know, you know what, what's going on and their understanding of their, their condition? Um, find out from them, do they, do they know about the driving restriction? It could be that, you know, they had their first seizure presented acutely, got discharged on a busy medical take and never found out they weren't meant to be driving it's advisable to give the patient the benefit of the doubt. But if it's established that the patient is intentionally non-compliant or doesn't intend to stop driving, you, you should take the steps to re-explain the importance of not driving and the re- reasons why um, and advise them to notify the DVLA and see what you can do to try and persuade them to do, do that because it is the onus is on the patient to notify the DV, DVLA. Um, they should be the one who informs them. Yeah. But if they are not doing that, they're refusing, then you would need to say that you will have to notify the DVLA because they're driving when medically unfit. And that's because uh, of the public interest thing that we've been talking about before. They're causing a risk of harm to others. If you're going to need to do something like this, it's, you know, speak to a third party, breach that confidentiality. Um, it's still best to tell the patient, even if it's against their wishes. So, you know, explain to them that if they're found driving when they are uh, unfit and DVA know, they could be open to prosecution. Um, and the reasons why you have to do it, that being that it's to, for the greater public interest and to protect um, other, other road users. Um, and it's probably worth, again, putting in a caveat that if you're doing this kind of thing, um, where things are getting a bit tricky, involving your consultant um, is a good move. Absolutely. And so the other thing which I saw regarding similar cases like this was that if you are going to disclose uh, information uh, about a patient and and breach the confidentiality to the DVLA specifically, they said you should also notify the patient in writing. And I think that's sensible to create that, you know, uh, paper trail to make sure that you're uh, you know you're acting uh, with with probity as, as a doctor so yeah 
absolutely. So main learning point there, in the public interest, significant risk to the patient as well as others if they have a seizure at the wheel, this breach of confidentiality is absolutely appropriate, but the principles of disclose just the information which is necessary, always give the benefit of the doubt to the patient in any type of these professionalism stations, always give the benefit of the doubt to the person who is supposedly doing the wrong thing. The bottom line is absolutely an appropriate breach of confidentiality in the public interest due to the significant risks that this person is posing to themselves and the general public. I think it's probably worth like another important learning point from from that one when you're talking about the notification in writing um, and actually most of these scenarios is that in real life when these things come up um, it can feel like oh I've got I've got a reason that I need to breach confidentiality and even if that's the the case none of it is urgent like an acute medical situation it's not like I've got to get the you know get the adrenaline in in my uh, in my recess scenario it's you you've got the time to do things properly so you don't have to have a trigger air response you can take your time you can notify in writing you can speak to seniors great moving on to our third scenario scenario number three you are friends with a general surgical registrar who informs you in confidence that they have a new diagnosis of hiv on discussion with them they intend to continue performing invasive surgery on patients stating they've worked so hard their entire career to get a general surgery training number they also ask you not to tell anyone about their new diagnosis as they've told you in confidence they have said they will manage it via their own gp but do not want to tell occupational health as they're scared it will affect their work so how would you go about approaching this one well um this is sort of classic uh, interview fodder um uh so these kind of tricky colleague scenarios are often something that come up um so good one to work around also clearly made up because as a, a cardiology trainee you don't know any general surgical registrars so um <laughs> the idea of you having a good enough friendship with them for them to disclose this to you you can tell you can tell this is you know plucked from the ether sam um so in this situation where a colleague uh, has made a disclosure to you about posing a significant risk to patients, um, and in this case by direct infection um, of a serious blood-borne virus, it, it's clear that this is a, an unnecessary and significant risk to patient safety. So breaching confidentiality is necessary, again, in that public interest, and that public interest is for their patient safety. Um, Again, this is the, the kind of scenario where you don't need to jump and do things straight away. I think you've got time to information gather. You've got time to try and talk to your colleague about what uh, they should be discussing with the GP, their occupational health, their educational supervisor and training program director. But if in this hypothetical scenario, they can't be con convinced, um, they're, despite the fact that you've been it, you've advised them to, then you need to disclose that information to seniors. And again, you should inform them that you're going to do that. And it would probably be your educational supervisor or their educational supervisor who would be the person that you discuss this with. It's a situation that you don't want to be uh, dealing with on your own. You wouldn't be expected to, but it's an area where you may have to 
breach that confidentiality outside of uh, a doctor-patient relationship, which is actually in a doctor-doctor relationship. Um, and so other scenarios that might come up would be things like uh, your colleague discloses to you that they have a substance misuse problem and they're turning up to work, you know, unfit to work, that kind of thing. They're, these are the kind of scenarios that you might come and cross in interviews and exams. Moving on to our fourth and final case of the episode. You have been asked to see a lady in the emergency department who was presented with an episode of loss of consciousness after walking into a door. She reports a history of walking into a door with a short loss of consciousness with rapid recovery and no seizure markers. A CT head scan is normal and she has no abnormal neurology. On examination, you find her to have significant facial bruises as well as multiple bruises on her flanks and thighs. She also has bruises on both upper arms that look like hand grip marks. You question her about possible domestic abuse and she admits she has been assaulted by her partner. They live together with no children. She's a primary school teacher and he is an insurance broker. She insists that you don't tell anyone else. It was a one-off incident and she will manage it herself. How should you proceed? So Tommy, it's another tricky one you know still something which the listeners may come across yeah i think you know it probably is actually far more common than we think um and it may not be that you have the situation where you have clinical signs but disclosures of domestic violence are actually quite common if you are open to them um and obviously coming from a paediatric background quite a lot of what i do is child protection uh and we have to assess for patterns of injury we spend quite a lot of time liaising with our social work and sometimes police colleagues. Um, but obviously this is an adult, so it's a slightly different situation to what I tend to be dealing with. And the difficulty comes from that fact that she is an adult with capacity and she's asked you not to breach confidentiality. What do you do? Um, well, by and large, you have to respect that. Uh, and that, that can feel quite uncomfortable. You should try and ex- you can try and explore why it is that this person doesn't want you to breach that confidentiality. Um, you can signpost them to the kind of services that may be able to help them. And I think we all tend to jump to the thoughts of police straight away. And actually, after the fact, and if someone doesn't want to proceed with uh, criminal prosecution, there's not that much that the police can do in this situation. But there are lots of charities that deal with these things um, and provide support to victims of domestic abuse and it's worth finding out what ones are available in your area Um, and that can help you feel like you're at least providing something to these uh, patients. That sometimes can be because the victims of uh, domestic violence worry about their perpetrator finding out and they worry about a breach of confidentiality leading to that. But Tommy, what, what about the public interest? Could could you feasibly breach confidentiality legally in the public interest in this situation? Because there is a risk. Um, I think there would be some rare scenarios where that might be the case if, you know, there has been some sort of attack and you're aware of an intention of harm to another's life. But you're not going to be able to pick that apart here. So actually, from the information we've got, we can't really say there's a risk to the general public from um, the story we've been given. So actually, that principle of autonomy and therefore the patient's confidentiality is taking the fall, and you have to to respect that. 
it is something if you were thinking about doing it because you felt that there was such a great risk to her or someone else, um, then it might be something you're discussing with your medical defence union. And I suppose the situations where that threshold might be met might be where this wasn't a adult with capacity. So if you had a vulnerable adult, um, for instance, someone with a learning disability, or if there were other dependents in the household who you felt were at risk. And from the paediatric side, what we end up doing is we inform the patient and parent whoever's appropriate at that time that we are going to be speaking to social services and we go through um, the emergency duty team or the multi-agency safeguarding hub and as far as I'm aware that's the same route for adults so if you had a vulnerable adult who had presented in this way um, who were who lacked capacity to ask you not to reach their confidentiality then it might be reasonable to discuss with um, other services but the first port of call of services would be social services and as a doctor as a medical professional it's it's not your job to investigate these things to move forward the social support that that may help it's your job is to highlight it to the correct agencies yeah and just another thing to mention on this case as well is that you you may pose more risks to the uh, victim by breaching confidentiality and like you said at the start it's very difficult if the victim actually doesn't want to press charges or, you know, give evidence against the uh, perpetrator without that evidence there. If they don't want to cooperate with the police, you know, convicting an, uh, an alleged abuser is likely to be really difficult. And the one thing I'll say about this particular situation, that it's a very difficult balance between respecting a patient's autonomy and their decision-making um, against the assessment of likelihood that a serious crime is going to be prevented and you know this is a really really tricky situation this is possibly even too complicated for uh, a paces or an imt uh, type exam but sort of in the the real world some from my experience of dealing with um injuries of harm in non-accidental injury the simple principles that apply are go- going to be uh, document everything document it very clearly discuss it with um your senior so you know this isn't something that you need to manage on your own and you should ideally do that within the time of uh, the shift that you're on obviously my experience is with uh children who are at risk and might get admitted for place of safety whereas this is an adult so there are some differences there but the reason those things still hold up is that uh, in this case we, we were talking uh, we're talking about them not wanting to have this confidentiality breached at this point. But if in the future um, there was a situation where the police were involved, one of the things they may want to find out or may require a court order for would be to review the information that you have documented and understood here. So, you know, um, the findings that we've talked about in the start of the um, scenario would need to be clearly documented and the kind of hand mark is the is the main one um, and if you are going to be involved in something like, like this um, it is well worth knowing that there are um, lots of papers so sort of scientific evidence-based um, reviews of what bruises where are consistent with uh, non-accidental injuries 
So um, if you do ever end up in the situation as an adult medic with a vulnerable adult talking about bruising patterns, know that there is evidence that you can find and use to back up the conclusions that you make. Well, there we are, guys. We hope that has been helpful to you in giving you some examples of applications of principles of confidentiality in a clinical context, which may be helpful either in paces in an internal medical training or registrar interview, or lo and behold, in your clinical practice. We have been hugely grateful to be joined by the guy with the straightest moral compass I know, Dr. Tommy Isaac. So Tommy, thanks again for joining us. Not, not a problem. I, I, you know, I hope I um, have shown that most of the time there is a a logical answer and you can just follow the playbook of um, confidentiality and being able to explain why you've made the decisions you've made keep you uh, medically legally safe so guys there we have it we are just about out of time as always you can get in touch with us you can tweet at prepaces podcast get in contact via the website that's prepacespodcast.com keep your ears peeled for new episodes coming up every couple of weeks but for now we're just about out of time Thank you for joining us for this episode and we will see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast.